We're in Judges, uh, going through the book of Judges, verse by verse. I love expository teaching, so if you're new to that, I hope you'll enjoy it too. Uh, If you're joining us today for the first time or listening online, I just want to catch you up to speed. The Judges is a dark stain, really, on, on Israel's history. It's filled with a lot of bad examples. Um, it is a, a dark time for Israel. It, it picks up after the conquest with Joshua. Joshua went into the land. They fought a lot of people. They won a lot of battles. They took a lot of land. But they didn't take all the land. Most of it, not all of it. And Judges 2.22 gives us at least part of the reason. It was so that God could test the subsequent generations to see if they would obey God. Like their parents and their parents and, and their parents. Would they be obedient? And of course, they're not. Instead of finishing what Joshua started, driving out the remnant of those Canaanites living in the land, Israel's like, nah, I got this. And they just settle in and among the people. And the people introduce them to false gods, to pagan gods. The, the people of the land that they're now living in and among, they do this, and Israel turns their back on God. They fall into sin and rebellion. And as the cycle in Judges occurs, God will raise up a foreign nation to oppress them. The people will cry out to God for help. God will be merciful, raise up a deliverer. He will lead the people, drive away the military threat. And then everything will be good for a while, and then this cycle will just repeat itself each time, progressively getting worse and worse and worse. Well, that's what you need to know as we begin um, my tenth sermon, part ten of our journey, of our study through the book of the Judges. We're going to pick up today in chapter six, verse one. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them. And devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts. Notice the imagery. They'd come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Look back to verse 1. The narrator, Samuel, whoever it may be, is very clear as he directs our attention to who he is attributing these disasters to. These disasters have now befallen Israel, and he makes it very clear that this is God's hand in play here because of their sin. And we see three different groups, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the Easterners. But really, the, the chief 
The chief agent of judgment is identified as the Midianites throughout this story, which is a little interesting because Israel and the Midianites used to be on pretty good terms. You go back to Genesis chapter 25, 2 to 4, Abraham, Father Abraham, his second wife, Midianite, Keturah. Genesis 37, 25 to 36, we see another mention of the Midianites in the sale, to jo- in the sale of Joseph uh, into Egypt. We go to Exodus chapter 2, 15 to 22. Moses kills the Egyptian, beating the Israelite. He flees. Who gives him safe haven? The Midianites. Who does he marry? A Midianite gal. Fast forward to after the time of the Exodus, after they've come out of Egypt, they're at Sinai. Moses' father-in-law, a Midianite, Exodus 18, gives him some great advice on how to restructure the leadership within Israel. But since then, I think it's fair to say that the relations with the Midianites have really deteriorated. Now they are the marauding Midianites, wrecking havoc on Israel. We see the imagery in these opening verses. They're like locusts. They come in and they're just taking whatever they want. And Israel can't do anything about it. I mean, you can see the situation. You go to verse 2. They're having to live in these dens they've made for themselves, in mountains, in caves, in strongholds, because of what, well, life is like now. This is what life is like for Israel. This is how life has been for Israel for the last seven years, as the Midianites have wrecked havoc on Israel. They've been brought very low, verse 6 tells us, as a result. Very low. Economically low? Sure. Emotionally low? Yeah, I'd imagine so. Imagine if you can't live in your home. If you're having to go live in shelters man-made for defensive positions, for defensive reasons, you might be a little bummed, to say the least. No, they've been brought low. There is a real hurt here. I get it, they messed up, but don't, don't miss that, okay? We read the text too quickly. They're at a low point right now. Some of you guys are at a low point right now. Maybe, maybe the last week, the last few months. You know, sure, our spiritual journey is up and down, but maybe right now you're like, yeah, I feel like I'm in that valley. I feel like I'm there. It's been seven years for them. Maybe it's been seven weeks or seven days or seven months from you. Imagine how they feel. Seven years of this? You think it's going to get old? So yeah, they've been brought low. Midian has thoroughly wrecked them. And what do they do? Well, they cry out to God for help. That's what oftentimes we do when our back is against the wall. We want help. Our back's against the wall. (laughs) In those moments, yeah, we need God. They do too. But as we've come to expect, especially if you've been here for the first nine sermons in the book of the Judges, As we've come to expect, despite the fact that they're crying out to God for help, there is zero hint of repentance. There is zero desire for God's forgiveness. They want God's help. That's it. The rest of this story is going to further illustrate that point 
right there. People don't like pain. Of course people want God's help. But do they want to repent? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And yet, God is going to be so kind to them as we're going to see. He's going to be so kind despite what I just said. And so this unnamed prophet is sent by God to the people. Picks up in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. There's 24 chapters in Joshua dedicated to that phrase right there. He's done a lot. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. A few things this unnamed prophet is going to point out to the people. The first thing he's going to point out is God is faithful. God is good. God is kind. As he says, I want you to think about all the times in your life where God has just answered your prayer, where God has just been so real, so undeniable. It was, yes, God showed up. That's what he's doing, right? He's stirring their minds. He's recalling their memories from Egypt to the conquest, spanning 24 chapters in the book of Joshua. He is good. He is faithful. He is kind. But the second thing that this prophet is going to do, and we see it in verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Okay? Me. Just me. Not the God of the Amorites. I am the Lord your God. Israel loves to have their cake and eat it too sometimes. Not that we're totally like abandoning Yahweh, but we keep one hand on, on God and then we keep the other hand on the other pagan gods that we've been introduced to by the people living around us. No. No, God is a jealous God, the Bible tells us. He's not going to be your plan B. He's not even going to be your plan A and share it with someone else. I mean, think about it. For those of you in here who have a significant other, or if you've had a significant other, imagine you tell, you tell your lady friend, hey, um, I know like we're in this committed relationship, but I'm going to go on a date with some other gals. How's that going to go over? You think that's going to go over real well? I mean, for, if you're in your right mind, some guys are like, oh, I don't care, you know. Okay, if you're in your right mind, how well is that going to go over? Not, no one's going to say, oh, that's fine, sweetie. Enjoy your date tonight with, you know, whoever it is that you're going out with. Like that, you say, that's just crazy. That's my point. That's, that's the point here, right? If, if it's crazy for us to think that when it comes to, like, a relationship that we have, how much crazier it is to think about like God. Like He will have no rivals. He will not be a plan B. He is a jealous God. He is a holy God. He, he will not tolerate the idols that Israel has cling to no more than He will tolerate the idols in our lives that we love to cling to. We hold His hand and we hold these idols' hands. 
Yeah, yeah, he's not okay with that. Not one bit. And the third thing this unnamed prophet points out, God has spoken, they hadn't listened. Look at the end of verse 10. But you have not obeyed my voice. Like in other words, it wasn't due to my instructions not being super clear. Okay? My instructions have been super clear. You get it? They just didn't want it. They didn't want to obey. They heard his voice. It wasn't for lack of hearing. It wasn't because the instructions weren't clear. They just didn't want to. Those are the three things this prophet's going to point out. God is wonderful. God is kind. God is good. Second, God won't have rivals. He's not going to be someone's plan B or even share that number one spot. And third, they haven't listened. All these things are going to culminate with this one central idea. And the prophet coming to them is going to highlight how undeserved the people are to have Yahweh come and intervene on their behalf. Like, I'm standing back, and I'm thinking, they've been dealing with this Midianite problem for seven years. Yes, they've been brought low economically. Yes, I'm sure they're crying over this. This is hurtful and painful and difficult. But after hearing what the prophet says, I'm like, let him rot another seven years. After we read the announcement of the prophet, it shows us how undeserving they are. Like at this point, if God decides to raise up a deliverer for them, a judge, deliverer, it's going to be an entirely gracious act. Because they don't deserve jack. But is not that not the message of the gospel? Like how undeserving we are? That, that, that's the gospel right there. Say, man, Israel, after hearing the announcement of the prophet, like, God, God owes them zero. And yet, you think of us. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still, what's the word? There it is, right? You go to, that was Romans 5, 8. You go to verse 10. We are enemies of God. Romans 1, 30. We are haters of God. And then you begin to realize, whoa. There's a lot of parallels between us and Israel. And that's the gospel, right? That's grace. So should God hear their cry? Should God intervene on their behalf? Should God raise up Gideon? It will be an entirely gracious act. Oh, by the way, yes, they've cried out to him for help, but there is zero hint of repentance at all at this point. And that's the grace of God. Spoiled it maybe for some of you. You're like, oh, we're going to learn about Gideon. We are. Uh, a less known story about Gideon today. The, I might call it Gideon part one. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash, that's Gideon's dad, the Abizurite. This is a clan within the tribe of Manasseh. Israel has 12 tribes. Every tribe has different clans and subclans. And they didn't always get along very well. So, but he comes from Manasseh. It's one of the 12 tribes. Remember, Joseph, he gets a double blessing. There is no tribe of Joseph. or There's a tribe of Ephraim, his son, and Manasseh, his other son. Just for uh, background context. And so this angel of the Lord comes to Gideon Son of Joash, the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. 
I don't want you to miss this. There he is, beating out the wheat in the wine press. Now, traditionally, when you would beat out wheat, you'd do it outside. If you would beat out wheat, you would do it maybe on a hillside. Why? Because there's lots of wind coming in and out of the hillside. So you'd have, think of it maybe like a giant fire pit. You're not going to have a fire, but think of something where this is like a designated area. You maybe have rocks along the perimeter, and you'd gather all the wheat, you'd drop it there. And then you'd take maybe your pitchfork, you'd throw the wheat up in the air. The wind, because you're outside on a hill, takes advantage of that. It's coming through. It's blowing the chaff or the insignificant parts of the wheat that you don't really care about. It's blowing that away, and then the heavy kernels of the wheat, they drop the ground. That's how you separate the wheat from the chaff. But once again, that process is going to be done outside on a hill because the wind is going to be really helpful. You want to see some of the effects of sin? Last week I talked about this, right? Sin loves to make grand promises and then never deliver. And this is how Israel finds themselves once again. Here's Gideon doing this activity probably ten times as hard inside the wine press. Maybe they had some good ventilation, but I imagine it's a lot more challenging. But that's what sin does. I mean, you go back to the garden, right? Oh, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, right? It's going to make everything better. False. It's going to make everything harder. No shortcuts, right? There's the temptation. There's the temptation, right? I mean, you think Pilgrim's Progress. There's Pilgrim on his way to the celestial city, and the whole like, spiritual journey he's on, he's constantly being tempted. Go this way. Oh, you can have this shortcut. Oh, you do this. Oh, it'll be that much shorter. It never is. It never works out that way. And here you see Gideon doing a job you would typically do outside. He's got to do it inside. As it says in verse 11, he's hiding it. What I did is, and I know for those listening online, I, what I did is I circled hide it right here in my Bible, and then I drew a line all the way back down here to verse 2 because it really just illustrates how low Israel's been brought. He's got to hide it. Otherwise, those marauding Midianites are going to come take it away from him. As they reluctantly have to live in their dens, caves, and strongholds. But that's the setting. That's, that's where Gideon is at when he is first approached. And the angel, verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Read that. Verse 12. It's there, yeah. O mighty man of valor. It hardly seems like Gideon is a mighty man of valor given the current situation. He's doing a task that should be done outside, inside, because he's afraid of the Midianites. And yet, this is the first greeting that the angel of the Lord says to him. Almighty man of valor, as he separates the wheat from the chaff. And what this is going to introduce, and here's the question. So if you're like taking notes, or you're like, what, what's something I should be thinking about as we get ready to go in the next few verses? And it's this question, where is Yahweh when you need him? Where is God when you need him? Where is the Lord when you need him? That's going to be introduced here. And so, Gideon is going to disregard what the angel of the Lord just said. Verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, as you say he is, why then has all this happened to us? 
Why do bad things happen to good people? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He's right. He's kind of right, at least theologically. His observation. Yahweh has abandoned us, at least in a temporary sense, theologically. That's true. Yahweh has delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Also true. But the problem here in Gideon's assessment is his tone. Where is God? You say the Lord is with us? I don't get that. Maybe that's how you feel sometimes. Like, God is with us. I, I don't feel that. I don't always get that. There's a disconnect happening. There's a disconnect happening for Gideon. We know what the disconnect is. Remember verse 1? Why is this happening? Well, we know because God has sold them into the hands of the Midianites because they have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But Gideon doesn't make that connection. For Gideon, it's much easier for him just to put the blame on God. You say God is with us, sir? I say, look at our situation. How is that possible? God's not with us. God's the problem here. And so instead of acknowledging Israel's culpability, instead of acknowledging Israel's responsibility, he just puts the blame on God. It's God's fault. That's the problem here. Good thing we never do that, right? We never do that. But it raises an important question raises that classic question of why do bad things happen to good people? Now, you say, well, Joe, contextually there, Gideon, they are culpable, they are responsible. Verse 1 connects us. Gideon just doesn't see that. He just doesn't see that. So how do we answer? What What if the circumstances were different? What if they weren't maybe on the hook? What if they weren't responsible? What if they hadn't sinned? Same question, Joe. And so I think it's important to at least address that. That maybe have a little footnote here. Deviate from the the text to that hypothetical scenario. It's obviously not true for Gideon, but I don't know. uh, Joseph? Yeah, we can make that argument. You know the story of Joseph. He had the, the coat with a whole bunch of colors. And his brothers, they're jealous. They sell him to the Midianite traders. And they sell him to Egypt, goes, works in Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison. He interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. The baker dies. The cupbearer lives, restores, restored later to Pharaoh, tells the cupbearer, remember me. He forgets. He spends more time in prison. Pharaoh has the dream. The cupbearer then remembers. They bring Joseph, comes, interprets the dream, and Joseph is, well, he is elevated to quite some level of prominence in Egypt. So, the question. God's plan for Joseph to suffer? For Joseph to go through difficulty, hardship, suffering? Or his brother's plan? That is the question. God's plan? God's plan for suffering, hardship, difficulty, adversity? Or his brother's plan? 
My answer? Yes. 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 And my answer is yes, because I just stole Joseph's answer. That's how Joseph interprets these events in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Once he reveals his identity to his brothers, remember what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. His brothers meant evil. But God meant it for good. Brothers meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Two meanings. Evil and good meaning. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's why I say God's plan or his brother's plan. Yes. There is one plan. And the plan was, Joseph, you're going to Egypt. You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience difficulty. You're going to experience hardship. I mean, it's not anything new biblically. Paul says in Acts 14.22, Have you not heard, through many tribulations, one must enter the kingdom of heaven? I wonder what many tribulations can mean. Well, church history tells us that, with the exception of John, all the apostles lived to die a martyr's death. So, we could start there. One plan. Joseph's going to Egypt. He's going to get some bumps and bruises along the way. Two designs and two meanings. His brother's evil. Hatred. Jealousy. God, good designs. Now, did Joseph know that? Well, it makes you wonder, what was Joseph's theology of suffering? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Did Joseph have a good theology of suffering? When all that was going down, I, I don't know. I don't know when it became clear to him. But the first time that we know that it became clear to him is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I think that's the difficulty with suffering and hardships is we often don't see things clearly or make sense of things until months or years down the road to where we, like Joseph, can say, Oh, yeah, there was a plan for me to go to Egypt. And my brothers, man, they had evil designs. But God, he had a good design. I was going to get some bumps and bruises along the way. But he had a plan. And the plan ultimately was for the salvation of many people. If you don't have a theology of suffering, you're not going to make it. Because there's too many hurts and pains in this world. Just turn on the news. You need to have a theology of suffering. Well, comes back to that question. Kind of how Gideon's complaining, right? You say God is with us? I don't see it. I fail to see it. Sir, he says, why do bad things happen to good people? I love R.C. Sproul. You know what he says to that question? I love it. You're going to want to write this down. I'm going to repeat it multiple times. It's just so good. Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. It only ever happened one time, and his name was Jesus, and they nailed him to a cross. I love that, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened one time. His name was Jesus, and they nailed him to a cross. See, the problem is, even the nature of that question, we think of ourselves as much better than we really are. Okay, we live in this self-esteem, participation trophy type of 
world today. And we, we just think that we're much better than we actually are. And we don't see ourselves as the Bible actually tells us. Haters of God, Romans 1.30. Enemies of God, Romans 5.10. Romans 8.7, even our minds are hostile to God. The problem is, even that very question, our view, our perspective is all messed up. So here's Gideon. Sir, I don't see it. How can you say God is with us? It doesn't look that way to me. And so instead he assigns blame to God. Instead of recognizing Israel's responsibility, Israel's culpability, he just puts the blame on God. We know that's not the issue. We know verse 1 tells us Israel has done what was evil. Gideon has a perspective problem. And I would argue that many people today have a perspective problem. They don't see things biblically. They don't see things, and that's the problem. We view ourselves better than we should. We don't see ourselves in light of our rebellion toward God. We don't see ourselves in light of our sinfulness towards God. And that certainly seems to be the problem here. But the angel of the Lord, without skipping a beat, totally just, he just kind of ignores Gideon's question slash statement. And says this, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Go. Go. Go in the spirit of the Lord. But Gideon's still not having anything. He still has another objection for why he can't go. Verse 15. And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. Makes you think of the story with Moses. I can't go and talk to Pharaoh. No, you don't understand, Lord. Lord, let me, let me help you out. And of course, you know what God says. Moses, who made your mouth? Like, shut up. Seriously. And here's Gideon. You think about how just, keep in mind, this conversation, this back and forth dialogue, how patient God is. So patient. Gideon has raised some more objections, wants to fill in this guy. And he doesn't seem to, at least in verse 15, he doesn't seem to fully recognize who it is he's addressing. He expresses his sense of incompetence, of inadequacy, particularly his lack of social standing in Israel. I only have this many friends on Facebook. Like, I only have this many Instagram followers. I don't think I'm the right guy. Like, my social standing, so low. Like, I come from the, tri- I come from the clan in Manasseh, low man on the totem pole. Even in my father's house, I'm like, least. Gideon doesn't realize that those things don't matter. They don't. Some of you still don't get this either. That's, that's part of the problem that we have today. We, we lack the imagination that we should have based upon what God has already done. What has he done? Think about what he's done for you. Think about what he's done, at least contextually here. What has he done for Gideon and the people? He took them out of Egypt. He's done all these amazing things. The prophet, this unnamed prophet, already announced that in verses 7 to 10. We know these things, but Gideon can't seem to imagine beyond that. 
We today, I think sometimes we just struggle. We can't imagine God doing anything more. And Gideon's problem tends to be kind of our problem, and it's his focus, his perspective. His focus is on himself. But God, I'm just totally incompetent. God, I, I'm, I'm just inadequate. I, I, I can't go. God, I can't deliver Israel from the hands of the Midianites. But the problem for Gideon tends to be our problem because Gideon's looking at himself to do the impossible. Of course you can't do that, Gideon. God can. And he will. Even for someone like Gideon who's low man on the totem pole. But Gideon simply looks at himself. It's part of our problem today. You think, oh, I can't do X, Y, and Z. Stop looking at yourself to do the task that God has called you to do. Why don't you look at the one who's called you? That perspective might help a little bit more. So here's his response once Gideon gives him the list of all the reasons he can't. Notice what he says. Verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Here's how it's possible. Here's how it's possible. I will be with you. That's how it's possible. That's how it's done. Some of you maybe today, you're you're, you're here and you're like, I just need some encouragement. You want some encouragement? He will be with you. I can't give you any more encouragement than that. He will be with you. Israel, that's the difference. That's the difference. That's the game changer. You say, I can't. He says, I will be with you. You say, I can't make disciples. I can't pour into people. I'm not old enough. I don't have enough life experience. I'm too old. People won't understand me. I can't relate to younger people. Or I don't know the Bible enough. What does Jesus promise? You think Matthew 28. Go. I will be with you to the end of the age. To the end. I will be with you. If I'm Pastor Wang, or I'm Pastor John, or I'm Pastor Yusuf in prison right now, or I'm Leah Sherabu, I'm holding on to that promise right now. How am I going to make it another day in, in, in this captivity with Boko Haram in Nigeria. How how am I going to make it one more day? And I'm thinking Matthew 28. I will be with you to the end. I imagine that's the only way any of his disciples who lived to die a martyr's death could make it. With that promise that he left them in Matthew 28. I will be with you to the end. That's your encouragement. No, we, we, we love to put conditions. Oh, I can't. Yeah, of course you can't. He can. And he will. He'll take someone like Gideon, low man on the totem pole, or Moses, or an 18-year-old college freshman to do what he's called you to do. I will be with you. Let that sink in. Gideon begins to get it. And so he decides he wants to ask for a sign. Oh, Gideon. But he does. 
verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me until I come to you and bring out my present. I want to give you a present and set it before you. And he said, Okay, fine. I'll stay with you until you return. 19. So Gideon went into the house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an epa of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. 21. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. He thinks he's a dead man now. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God! For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's a little afraid. 23. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, Gideon. Do not fear. You shall not die. 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Oprah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. Gideon wants a sign. He says, can you hang on one quick second? I want to go give you a present. Okay, I'll hang on one quick second. Goes in, makes a meal, brings the meal back. He says, you can set the meal right there on the rock. Okay, put it down, pour the broth on top of it. Great. Touches the staff to it. Boom, it's consumed in fire. And then this angel of the Lord vanishes. Gideon realizes at this point who he's been talking to the whole time. His perspective greatly changes. He realizes that he might be dead because he's seen him face to face. He knows the story of Moses. Okay? He knows when God had to hold back the glory of himself to Moses. So he thinks he's dead. Then he hears from God, no, you're not dead. Build this altar. Whew. And he gives him an assignment. Here's the assignment, 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. Not good. And cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. They have this pagan altar. In the midst of the town, God says, that's not going to work. You're going to tear it down. Asherah was the function as the female counterpart to Baal, the storm god, in this pagan fertility religion of the Canaanites. Uh, her, she was typically represented in like a wood carving in which the images would greatly exaggerate certain sexual features. And God's like, yeah, that's not going to work. Tear it down. And so he goes... Grabs the bulls, parks the bull. I just imagine, you know, pulling up in my pickup, you know, getting the chains out, right? Pulls the bulls up, gets the rope, grabs it, hooks it up to the statue, drives forward, tears it down. And then, as part of the desecration, because this, this would have been very offensive to these Canaanites, he uses the wood from the Asherah pole as kindling wood as he sacrifices the bull. He uses their, their own wood as part of the sacrifice of the bull. But I think we come to the end of the story, and 
And you see, especially that final verse there, he was afraid to do this during the day. He was really scared to obey God here. And I think as a reader, we come to the end of this story and we might even be a little disappointed, okay? Especially given the sign that Gideon just received, the near-death experience. We might be a little disappointed for his motivation. His hasty obedience appears not an eagerness to obey God, but rather he was afraid of the consequences from the citizens of Oprah should he tear it down in broad daylight. And here, I think, once again, you see the true spiritual condition. And this is really important when it comes to our perspectives. The true spiritual condition in this nation. His own family. Like Gideon believes his own family and his neighbors would come to the defense of the pagan idols before they came to defend him. Think about why I call it the dark days of the judges. How sick is that? That's the condition in Israel. Makes you think back to when Gideon puts all the blame on God. He doesn't see things as he should. But that's part of the problem in the story. Israel has brought this upon themselves. At the end of this story, it reveals the spiritual condition. They want God's help. Verse 6, verse 7, they've been brought low. They've cried to God for help. They just don't want His forgiveness. They want the suffering to stop. They just don't want to repent. God's not cool with playing second best. He's a jealous God. As this story shows, He is also so kind and gracious. So kind. So gracious. But the question is, do we see God the right way? Do we see God the right way with the right perspective? Do we have a a biblical perspective? Do we have a theology of suffering that enables us to deal with difficulties and hardships like Joseph had? Or are we like Gideon, so when something goes south, we immediately put the blame on God? Do we think up reasons why we can't do what he's called us to do? I can't make disciples. I can't obey him when it comes to killing sin. When it comes to giving money and being faithful steward of the things he's given to me. Do we put conditions on our obedience? That's that's what Gideon tried to do. Thinking up reasons why we can't? Or are we moved to action by seeing and remembering who our God is? Does that move us when you think about times in your life when He was so real, when He came through for you? Does that move you? He is the one that tells Gideon, I will be with you, Gideon. It's the same God who through Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, go, make disciples, and lo, I will be with you. To the end. To the end of the age. We can't. Oh, but he can. 
And I pray that we would have a more biblical perspective when it comes to these things. As the team comes, I want to pray for us today, guys. I want to pray for maybe the very thing that we are lacking. So God, I pray that you would hear us now. That you would give us a correct perspective. A correct perspective. Whether we find ourselves suffering for seven years at the hands of the Midianites or whether we've come up with a long list of reasons why we can't obey you, I pray that our perspective would be biblical and true. That we would remember in those moments when our faith is deficient all the great and good and kind things you have done for us. That you would give us faith, God, to trust you to believe you, to obey you. It's a big ask, Lord, but I'm okay with that because I know we have a big God. So help us now, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.